Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is one of my co-hosts, my favorite co-host. Well, thank you, Ward. Retired Fleet Master Chief Paul Kingsbury, the co-director of Outreach and also a member of the USNI Press staff and the editor of the most recent version of the Chief's Guide. Hello, Paul. It's been a few shows since we've had you on. It has. So and I've you've been, been all over the place. I have been. I've been doing the the outreach thing, right? Yeah. So the outreach, you got to get out. So I was uh, a few weeks ago up uh, doing the Senior Enlisted Academy um, student sponsor program engagement, uh, and then presenting an award for the excellence in written communication for class two two one. So that was a great opportunity. And then some time down in Norfolk doing some more uh, engagement. So uh, working on some maturing some of our professional books, right? So uh, for those that don't know, you know, we've got on the Navy side of Blue Jackets Manual, we've got the updated Chief Petty Officer's Guide. I've got a co-author now. Um, we're finishing up the manuscript for a Petty Officer's Guide, uh, and that's up at uh, the Navy Leader and Ethics Center right now, you know, getting a review for alignment and comment to make sure it stays relevant. And then uh, I'm working with a Coast Guard author that I'll go see this week as well to develop a Coast Guard version of the Chief Petty Officer's Guide and Petty Officer's Guide. So a lot of work going on in the press to work those professional series of books uh, and raise awareness of them. And I'll be, uh, and then also I had a chance to, to speak with retired Mass Chief Jim Lucy. Um, he works out at the, uh, at the annex for um, the museum down there. We had a great conversation about, you know, the history of the Chief Petty Officer and um, Which museum are we talking about? Uh, the Naval History Museum. Oh. It, there's an annex on the Naval Base. Um, the main museum is downtown in Norfolk. So Jim is a retired ITCM, and he, he worked there before he, he retired. Okay. Um, but they got a lot of cool stuff there. It's mostly focused on the history of Hampton Roads, um, some great white fleet stuff and things like that. Um, but a uh, great opportunity to talk, and I, I want to engage him more. Uh, you know, he's a wealth you know, of knowledge on uh, CPO history. In fact, he wrote the you know traditions of change, a history of our CPO initiation process as well. So, um, and then I'll be heading down. So the again. Great White Fleet—that's Teddy Roosevelt, yes, a member of the Naval Institute, yes. Um, so, uh, and then I'll be heading down. Uh, I'll see um, our guest actually down there too. I think for the McPons Leadership Mess, I'll be for providing a brief on USNI and and influencing through writing. All right, the new issue of. Proceedings is uh, just hitting the streets and a couple of things to, to point out. So in Admiral Daly's CEO notes, he again talks about the new website. We've mentioned that a couple of times on the show. If you have not checked out the new USNI.org, you really need to. Um, the UX, as we call it in the business, user experience is highly improved. Um, the layout is very clean yep. and uh, eminently readable. It is mobile friendly. It does uh, sort of change sizes based on your device. So uh, look for a lot of great content and uh, sort of it just opens up the aperture in a way that's Absolutely. really going to be awesome in terms of USNI being a digital uh, media organization. For the members, and uh, I, we assume that a lot of our listeners here on the Proceedings Podcast are members, and if you aren't, as we say many times, we do encourage you to uh, to become a member and go to usna.org to check that out. There is a membership tab there. But the annual meeting, always a great event, is on 25 April at CSIS, which the address is 1616 Rhode Island Avenue, Northwest D.C. The Honorable Ellen Lord, Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, will be our keynote. But the the draw there is 
members seeing each other. And I always look forward to this because I see people I haven't seen since the last annual meeting. Um, and it's a good chance to put a face to the name and all those sorts of things. The last thing I wanted to talk about before we get to our guest is uh, there is um, a, an item in the, uh, the Capital Gazette paper. And uh, we often talk about Navy football here because the Naval Institute is headquartered in Annapolis and uh, Beach Hall is located on the Naval Academy grounds. So there's always this tension between having a winning football team and making naval officers. Let's just assume the reason the Naval Academy exists is to make line officers for the Navy and Marine Corps. Does that seem like a fair assumption? That sounds like a fair assumption. Meanwhile, there's this this thing called Division I football, and it does create a lot of um, revenue, and it's it's also huge impact for the Naval Academy. Um, so last year, the Naval Academy had a dismal season, the first one since basically uh, Coach Niamatololo has been the coach, 3-10. Uh, so there's a great article by Bill Wagner, who is the sports beat reporter here, highly respected uh, in local circles, who covers um, Coach Niamatololo sort of staking his claim to get the football team back where it needs to be. Gotcha. So he's the football coach. Yep. He's not the commandant of midshipmen. He's not the superintendent of the Naval Academy. He's not on the board of visitors. He's not the CNO, right? So his responsibility is field a winning football team. So I I'm, I don't know if I've said it on the show before, but I am also uh, part of the chain gang for Navy home football games. Um, my class, my academy class does does that. Um, and so for every home football game, I'm on the home sideline holding the down box, right? So I'm the guy who changes the little number. You have to be able to do math yes. between one and four, right? And uh, in that role, I've been able to watch the coach very close up. I wasn't a football player here. I was on the sailing team, right? It's the anti-football player. Yes. Um, and you on a sailing although team? Although I was on the no dinghy way. team. It was the dinghy team, right? So it is hard. You know, you got to have a lot of core strength, but that's that's beside the point. My point is functional I've been able to see the team, and I respect the heck out of Coach Niamatololo's leadership and watching how he deals with the players and the assistant coaches and the refs, and, you know, he's the real deal. Okay, so his responsibility is field a winning football team. His assertion is the Naval Academy has lagged what it takes to field a winning team in Division One. So another thing that's happened is the Naval Academy is now a part of the uh, American Athletic Conference, and we've been there for four years. That conference has gotten better and better. Um, there's no easy games in the AAC, including University of Central Florida, which, you know, those guys had an undefeated season two seasons ago, and they made a claim for the national championship. Obviously, that didn't happen. And last year, um, they had some tough games in the big leagues. So whatever, but they are a fantastic team, and they generally win the conference. So they have recently. But you got Houston, you got Memphis, you got USF, you got um, Temple. There's all kinds of great teams in that so Navy was three and ten. Coach Neil Montalolo has said to the athletic director, "Hey, I need better facilities, and basically, I need my football players to kind of have a more unique and exclusive experience." So, plebe year, 
Not so much if you're a football player. Eating in King Hall with the rest of the brigade all at once? Probably not. So they're going to have their own dining facility, so forth and so on. Again, Coach Neomonte, I'm not criticizing Coach Neomontololo. Yep. This is his job is mm-hmm. to field a winning team. But what I do know, and this was true when I went here, is sometimes you don't have the same experience between being a regular mid and a varsity football player. There were some of my classmates who were varsity football players, even back in the 80s, um, who I would never see, certainly during football season, because they were you know, living in hotels before the game and they were gone and blah, blah, blah. Um, okay, now it looks like we're on the cusp of doing it one, I don't know, better or worse right. in terms of creating a separate experience for the varsity football team. So more to follow. In fact, I'm sort of on the verge of, of writing a Proceedings Magazine article about how this this next step is rife with peril. Yep. Um, and I, I, I really, I'm, I'm not, I'm not even past judgment on what I want to happen, but I will say I am going to very much watch what is going to happen with this idea going by yep. the superintendent. Now, the other thing about that is the current superintendent, Admiral Carter, is leaving this summer. So new superintendent coming in. He hasn't been announced yet. It will be a he. There were some rumors that it might be the first female superintendent, mm-hmm. but I think the short list is three males, um, two Navy, one Marine. So it'll be the first Marine. But this challenge is going to be at his feet. There's also going to be a new commandant coming in. There already is a brand new deputy commandant. So I'll be interested to watch how this develops going forward. Um, so anyway, just wanted to bring that up at the beginning of the show. More to follow on that topic. Um, you know, football season will be here before yes. we know it. <laughs> so, yep. uh, you know, important stuff. It is here. value and value and belief systems in conflict right now. So we'll see kind of exactly what happens um, going forward. All right, enough ESPN ish kind yes. of stuff here. Let's get to our guest. All right. So uh, with us today we have uh, Command Mass Chief Bill Houlihan, the Region Mass Chief down at uh, Navy Region Southeast down in Jacksonville, Florida. Bill, good morning. Welcome. Good morning, guys. Thank you for having me. So to cut to the point, you know, as Ward mentioned uh, when we we talked ahead of time, right? Um, I don't know. Over the last several months, if not longer, um, there's been a kind of a narrative out there. Um, I've been hearing a variety of things about what I would call the health of the cheese mess and the focus of the cheese mess. So uh, about a month, what, Ward, about a month or so ago, we had ET2 Fisher on who didn't write for proceedings necessarily, but had two articles. Uh, no, he didn't write for proceedings at all. No, right. And we're <laughs> but still, he did write for We Navy did Times. offer that for him yeah. to come yeah. to that form. So maybe before he gets out in August, he'll write. Yes. Um, so we had him uh, on to talk about the two articles. He popped in Navy Times, which were you know, fairly aggressive at uh, – at what he thought is a misfocus of priorities of the cheese mess. Um, I've occasionally heard, you know, some pieces from CNO, Mick Pond and others about, hey, chiefs, you know, when the housing um, uh, issue came up, you know, there was a message to the chiefs, hey, you know, and other things with uh, or all hands calls where pay issues had to get resolved in all hands calls. So there was some messaging of the cheese mess that, hey, you're not engaged in the way you need to do. And then uh, most recently, you know, Bill had a Facebook post that talked to chiefs earning back the trust, right? So, Bill, if you, uh, you know, there's the stage set. So what uh, what got prompted you to even start with the Facebook f- uh, post first? And uh, what are you seeing 
uh, that prompted you and what responses are you getting? Well, what's interesting is that um, I had actually begun work on an article uh, for Proceedings or for the, uh, the Naval Institute uh, blog on the necessity of the mess earning back the trust of our sailors. And so as I was working on this, and, I, and frankly, I think I had even sent it in, um, maybe the day or uh, the day before or the day of, I had a career development board uh, with a sailor. And it was a reporting career development board. And, uh, you know, we were having a discussion. And as CDBs typically go, uh, we started talking about career aspirations. And uh, on his information sheet, which they all fill out before a CDB, uh, he put on there that he wanted to uh, to look toward the officer community as as a career goal. And as we discussed that, I asked him, as I ask any sailor uh, who wants to be an officer, I will kind of um, we'll, we'll we'll take a tact of kind of a lighthearted approach, and I'll say, "Wow, you don't want to be a chief? Are you kidding me?" And uh, he he his response was so adamant. And it was so quick and so confident. And he just simply said, I absolutely do not want to be a chief petty officer. And that is not the response you typically get from, um, from a sailor who wants to go officer, um, at least not that adamant. And so, uh, it, it, so I, pu- I pushed a little bit. And I'm like, really? Why, why are you so – why do you have this conviction? And he said, I have never met a chief petty officer that I aspire to be. And I have to tell you that in 20 years of doing CDBs and 20 years of being around sailors and, frankly, 20 years of being a chief, that statement, that brief statement, probably staggered me more than anything I've ever heard a sailor say. And I, uh, and I, so I, I wanted to dig in, and um, I didn't do it right then, not at that CDB. Um, I did it a couple days after. But uh, that statement in itself um, made me start to really think, why – how in the world could we have a sailor, an E5, a young sailor, who is so certain and so convicted that, or have a conviction that he doesn't want to be a chief because he's never met one that inspired him or made him aspire to be a chief? Um, and that, to me, kind of dovetailed into the article that I had already written and sent to you guys. Um, and that is that I believe that we as a mess have um, lost the instinct to personally develop our sailors. And when I say personally develop, I mean there is uh, the desire to get to know a sailor as well as they know themselves and the desire to create goals for them, personal goals that allow them to surpass those goals and to learn about themselves and, and to become better people and the desire to just simply help a sailor and put them in a position to succeed. Um, I, I just don't know that we have that instinct anymore. And it's not necessarily a, um, a negative characterization of the mess because our mess is being asked to do so much right now. And as you look across the Navy and you look at the challenges our Navy faces and you look at the future, and I think, Paul, you and I have discussed what the future entails in terms of the the hurdles that our, our Navy has to face and, and frankly, our, our, the defense of our nation and how it's, it's going to hinge on uh, the capabilities of our Navy. We are, our mess is stretched thin, but, and, and I think that in a lot of respects, 
one of the casualties of uh, the taskings of the mess from a technical expertise and from a, a bigger navy expert, or from a bigger navy perspective is that our chiefs are not taking sailors to the used car lot anymore and making their presence felt so that that car salesman knows that they will not uh, ask a sailor or demand a 25% interest rate because a chief is there, because a chief is there taking uh, custody of their sailor. And um, that's, a, that's a small example of what our chiefs used to do for us. But it to me, it is an idea and an ideal that the mess has got to get back to, in addition to everything else that the Navy expects of us, in addition to us being technical experts, in addition to us being program and policy experts, in addition to preparing our Navy to fight a war, I'm saying that we also need to be the experts when it comes to who our people are and the best way to inspire them and motivate them and lead them. And we have to do that by gaining their trust. And if they trust us, they will do anything for us. It's proven. A sailor who trusts their leader will do anything. So when the time comes to give the hard order, the hard order in battle, that sailor is not going to ask a question when that order is coming from a chief petty officer who they trust. So that is kind of where I'm going with this. And when I talked to that sailor again and asked him why he didn't want to be a chief, it was completely, that answer was steeped in an experience that he had at his previous command that was case study after case study after case study of chief petty officers. And I wouldn't say failed this sailor, but didn't lead him the right way. Now, is my stance based on my conversation with one sailor? Absolutely not. This has been a long time coming and it is a result of conversations with hundreds of sailors and chiefs and um, a real belief that we have got to get back to trust-based leadership and uh, it is not a stretch it's not hard to get there it's just chiefs being good people and caring for their people that's all it is so this does when you talk about the number of data points you have, this was our fear with our conversation with ET2 Fisher, mm -hmm. um, and that's why we, we we deliberately pulled it up to thirty thousand feet at, yeah. at one point because he he also um, to hear some of his sea stories, if you will, or specific examples of where the chain of command or the chief's mess had failed him, they were heartbreaking. You know, he, he, I don't know if you heard the show or if the listeners, uh, we recommend they listen to that, that episode because he does talk about some specific things and he talks about, he first checked in with the paymaster. He talks about other things where, um, he was told he could have leave and then he, he was yanked away from him and, you know, all this other sort of obtuse stuff, uh, going by the chief in his chain of command. Um, so, very much appreciate you saying that this isn't just one example. The data, uh, I think by this point, and this is why we're talking about it, because we're not just talking about a small data set. This seems systemic. And again, to remind the uh, listeners, uh, we're, we're talking to Command Master Chief Bill Houlihan uh, about his blog post article, Navy US and I blog post, Message to the Mass, Earn Back the Sailor's Trust. And I will just point out that the fact that this hard-hitting post is on the Navy blog and not in proceedings shows you the the growing suite of impact properties here at the Naval Institute. It doesn't have to be a proceedings article in the print magazine to have this kind of impact. So that's just a side note. So Bill, you talk about the Decatur experiment at the beginning of the article. Can you explain what that was? Sure. And, and just to kind of touch on um, 
the data size and the, and the pool sample. Um, I was pretty hard on the mess. I, I was pretty hard on the mess in that blog post. And, um, and I would not characterize our chief's mess the way I did based on one conversation with one sailor. I mean, this is years. This is over a decade, more than a decade of, um, of talking with sailors in all manner of environments. Um, and it's just kind of been building. So the Decatur experiment. So 2004, um, the uh, onboard USS Decatur, a destroyer, um, 19 chief petty officers were uh, formally tasked with uh, division officer responsibilities. And so I don't know the genesis of it. I don't know um, the reasoning behind the experiment itself, but I do know that chief petty officers were placed in division officer uh, roles, and then that allows the division officers uh, probably more time to get uh, qualifications, specifically SWO quals and other things. So I'm uh, guessing it was a manpower shortage uh, was was the catalyst there? No. No? What so it was, it was actually a deliberate effort to um, provide more authorities to the chief's mess, right? Um, and. So I've got an article that'll come out in May that kind of discusses this as it gets into. Oh, you're teasing us with your yes. future article. Yes, okay. the senior chief mass chief use. Um, but no, it wasn't okay. based on manpower shortages. It was like, hey, I've got a more informed, modern, capable chief mess. Um, education aside, because I didn't see that was how can we leverage that new way? So there was um, looking over at the Coast Guard to go, hey, we've got chief petty officers that are commanding officers. You know, we got you know, there's other models. There's an opportunity to provide increased. Uh, opportunity for authority. Um, unfortunately, what I think happened, and sorry to get ahead of this bill, is it got messaged all wrong because it came out, hey, we're trying to make chiefs into officers. Um, that was not the intent. But my, my question is, if you make a chief a division officer, yep. what happens to the officer who would hold that billet? So I think it was to allow, like Bill said, to let them focus on tactical oh, okay. fighting skill okay. development. So they're not doing the... the- right the other right. administrative yes. stuff. After yep. they and I come think that the, the ultimate consequence of that and the reason that it stopped is because um, we took chiefs out of their traditional roles as um, as deck plate leaders, and, and you saw the term kind of crop up soon after the Decatur experiment. We took them out of those traditional roles, and we asked them to fill the jobs traditionally held by division officers and everything that went along with that, from administration to uh, some of the... Um, the leadership roles that chiefs hadn't traditionally filled. And so what fell by the wayside? Sailor interaction fell by the wayside. Chief petty officers in the work center fell by the wayside. Chief petty officer conversations on the deck plates and on the mess decks or the smoke decks or wherever. And a chief petty officer finding a sailor and looking them in the eye because they know that sailor so well, they know within two or three seconds that something is troubling that sailor. And we take away the capability of the chief to solve a problem to solve a personal problem before it tumbles into something serious. And that right there, that interaction between a chief petty officer and a sailor, the traditional interaction where a chief petty officer can give solid advice, ground in experience and compassion, we take that away from them when we are placing them in positions that separate them from sailors. And I think that is the casualty that we saw from the Decatur experiment, and I believe it's why we went away from it. So you, you frame that, what you just said, very nicely, uh Right after you talk about the Decatur experiment, you say our mess is becoming more credentialed, more educated, better versed in science, better writers, more comfortable in joint environments. The degrees are piling up, but at what expense? Right. And to me, the casualty and the expense is that we are taking our chiefs away from 
our sailors. We are taking our chiefs away from them, and as a result, a sailor is not going to be as prone to go to a chief petty officer to help them solve their problems. doesn't mean the first-class petty officers can't solve them, but there are problems, there are challenges inherently handled by the chief's mess that are not being brought to our door because a chief petty officer may not be in a position because they are spread pretty thin, and we're taking them away from the faces of sailors, we're spreading them thin, and therefore the trust is going away with it. So I, you know, I use a model, you know, it's, it, I mean, it's kind of how power and influence works, but to your point about trust, right, to have trust, you have to have credibility, and if I back up to have credibility, I got to demonstrate character and competence, right? So right. we would call that expert power, and we'd call that referent or personal power. So so fast forward, 2004, we stopped the Decatur experiment, and we're 14 years later. So that should have reset the mass, as Joe, you know, Mick Poncampa would say back there. So it's 14 years later, and it's obviously manifesting the fact that either, or do you think, does the Chiefs mess have a broad issue with their expert power or their personal power? Is, there a, is it an erosion of their character in general? Is there an erosion? And, and you get to this with privilege. Is it an erosion of expert power due to you know systematic processes that shape their expert uh, their technical expertise? Is this you know what percentage of the mess is this? That I think that's an important part of the, uh, part of this discussion. From a perspective of expert power, so now we're talking technical expertise. Now we're talking chief petty officers and rating knowledge. Okay, um, I believe as opposed to rate knowledge, which is a separate thing, as you and I have talked about, Paul. Yep. When it comes to rating knowledge, I believe our chief petty officers are as smart and as in tune with their ratings as we've ever been. I do not doubt that a chief petty officer is a technical expert. But when we talk about personal power, and we are talking about a chief petty officer's ability, innate ability, to recognize a sailor who is struggling, that right there, I believe that is where we are lacking. Okay, And I don't even view it as a character issue. I don't think that because a chief petty officer simply doesn't see something, meaning doesn't recognize a problem, you know, in, in a human problem. Um, I, I don't feel that that's a character problem. If they choose to ignore those problems, if they know about an issue that a sailor is facing and a chief petty officer chooses to ignore it, that's a different issue. That's a character issue. But the personal power and the erosion of personal power to me comes from a chief who perhaps hasn't been trained to look for those issues, hasn't been trained to the value that, uh, that w- we must instill in our new chiefs. We have got to instill in them that helping sailors succeed, measuring our success through the success of the sailors we lead has got to be a huge priority. We have got to convince our chiefs mess that if a sailor has a housing problem or a pay problem, or a marriage problem, or a financial problem, that they have got to be, their instinct has got to be at least to wonder, can my chief, is my chief available to help me? Because I know that my chief has experience in this. And frankly, I know my chief cares enough about me that he will stop what he's doing if he can and help me, or she will help me get through this problem. At a stage of the problem where it doesn't become personally reckless. I I just want to know that our chief petty officers are being trained to the value of compassion and the values of being a good person, which equates to being a good chief. So you mentioned uh, the previous Mick Pond and how he went away sort of quickly because of a hostile work environment. Um, and then you say, um, you say, I don't know 
uh, that Master Chief, but I do know this. Chiefs have been creating by design, or in some cases through character flaws, hostile work environments since 1893. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's dive deeper on, on what that's all about. Okay. Um, okay, first of all, like I said, I don't know McPonty or Dono very well. And frankly, what 98% of us probably know about that situation is what we read in Navy Times. Um, and so when there are claims of a hostile work environment, and then we sit back and we look at it from afar and say, wow, how could any MCPON create a hostile work environment? My question to any chief who says that is, we don't know if there was a hostile work environment because we're not privy to the details of that situation, number one. But number two, who are we to um, take pot shots at a hostile work environment when so many of us have fallen victim to that instinct um, and that style of leadership for so many years. And it's just a fact. We're hard leaders. You know, chief petty officers are standards-based, stern leaders. And we have all met chiefs over the years who run their work centers differently than others. And in some cases, those work centers are run in a hard, stern way. How does a sailor react to that? How does a sailor react when they know for a fact that if they're going to walk into their chief's office, they're going to be met with a less than positive attitude? It creates a circumstance where they are less likely to bring problems to the door of the chief petty officer or the first-class petty officer who's being trained by that chief. So my point about bringing up uh, Mick Pongiordano's uh, situation was before we get too critical and point our fingers at a fellow chief which I consider Mick Pongiordano to be, I would hope that all of us can take a look at ourselves and look at our work centers and ask ourselves, are our sailors likely to come to us with an issue? And if not, is that reason that they're not likely to come to us because they're more scared of us than they trust us? Yep. So this is more than a focus on degrees or things like that. This is where I think this comes from. So um, your value and belief system, what you value and believe in shapes your attitude, right? And how you approach things and your behavior, what you say, what you do, right? Um, what you put on your car, you know, these kind of things. So my point is what drives the value and belief system of the, of your average Navy chief petty officer. And is that, um, when you look at the words of the chief petty officers creed, when you look at the mission vision guiding principles, um, there's a value and belief system there that, you know, has been endorsed, not just by the chief's mess, but, um, wardrooms have read it and endorse it. I don't think we know who wrote it or when it was written. Um, but is there an image or a belief in your average chief that I've got to be this hard, stern leader, I've got to be this throwback to World War II or Vietnam era chief um, that was a different generation, a different time, a different context? We weren't on volunteer Navy. Um, well, so, is, is that what was going on with Mick Pong, Mick Pong Giordano? Is that what, is that? So he, I think it gets to this. There's, you know, when you get get in a hostile work environment, there's a sense of, hey, I'm leading in a an aggressive kind of way, uh, and I think this is the tone that's coming out from ET2 Fish and these other sailors, right? It's a reflection of there's a mismatch between their expectations of what a chief petty officer should and could be, and what we're actually delivering on. And that, and once again, not every chief. Um, I can also go, hey, each chief has its own independent leadership style. Every sailor does, right? So I may lean towards authoritarian leadership. I may lead towards democratic leadership style. I may be laissez-faire, hands-off. So my concern is when when things like the Chief Petty Officer's Creed or Selection Board Precepts um, or General Belief Systems, to what level is that shaping 
the individual behavior of a chief. So thoughts on that, Bill? I think that how many chiefs do we have? Upwards of 30,000. About 30,000, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it is tough to say that um, there is an institutional value system that is uh, common among chiefs. You know, there, and there, there is. You know, there are a couple things common among chiefs. And, and I think that, um, you know, pride in being a chief is, is one of them. I think um, taking great pride in the ability to lead sailors is another. Ability to execute. Ability to support a commander's intent. Ability to get a ship underway and have that ship operate at a high level. I think all those things are, are values that, a, that is common to the chief petty officer. I think that um, when we talk about uh, work environments, when we talk about culture, when we talk about sailors who uh, should feel comfortable in uh, the way that they're being developed as people, I think that is a value that we need to push a little more toward our chief's mess. And I think it probably starts in August with chief's initiation, and I think it continues with our training continuum and development, and I think it continues through mess training, and all it is is the consistent emphasis on making ourselves available and creating a culture where our sailors um, feel that they are valued. Um, and that sounds a little more passive than I want it to, but <laughs> I think that our sa- it got it boils down to trust for me. Yep. It, it just continues to come back to that, yep. and-, and I think if we instill that one of our primary values has got to be leading a division of sailors who look at us at quarters every morning and know that the word we're passing them is going to be, it's going to be direction that is safe. It's going to be direction that is mission oriented, and it is going to be um, a type of direction that allows them to know that I would not put you in a position to be harmed if I don't have to, if it is not critical to the mission. And I am also always concerned about how you're living, about how your family is living, and about what I can help you do to make you a better sailor and a better person. And if there is that shred of compassion on the part of our chief's mess as a whole, our sailors are going to generate trust for us as an institution, and that will lead to a better force. Well, I mean, this is what Paul pointed out to me last time we were up in Newport at the Senior Enlisted Academy is it, and not a function of that class's behavior, but just as a general phenomenon. Um, and when you were talking, Bill, it just what came to my mind is you can't fake caring about right. your charges, right? It's, it's, right? it's either there or it's not. And they will know yep. if you're faking it. Also, it's not about you. And so as soon as becoming a chief becomes a, sort of a, a brand unto itself, yep. it, we've jumped the shark there, right? Um, but give me a gut check on, on this. Um, so... When you talk about the new chief's initiation in August and you're saying go out and, and, and make sure you dig deep and know who they are and, and so forth and so on. How about this phenomenon where because of some of the social science programs, um, you know, sexual harassment and other other sort of initiatives, equality programs, um, the unintended consequence of some of those programs has been you've weaponized um, the subordinates' ability to – stick it to a leader they don't like. And, right? and 
social media enables them to communicate that. Okay, as so seen. it goes faster. But yep. Roger that. So if I'm a brand new chief, I'm afraid if I get into the lives of my sailors, they could use that against me. Like he was asking me questions about my marriage, right? And that, you know, um, was something I thought was too personal. And so at that point, I didn't trust him. And then he asked me another question. And, you know, suddenly you're like, whoa, you're rocked back on your heels because this guy didn't like the fact that you were uh, telling him to, uh, you know, swab the mess decks or something, right? Or, you know, hey, it's your responsibility this time to do, uh, you've got the fantail trash duty or something, whatever it is. And he just doesn't want to do it. And so now because he's not he's not doing his part as a subordinate, he's going to weaponize some of his quote unquote yep. rights. So yeah, the grievance so procedure. Can I and obviously this is a cop out, but can I as a chief, a new chief, go, hey, I'm concerned in this new environment, unlike the World War II environment, where you could woodshed yep. a, an errant sailor and and uh, and you know do, do it that way. And even corporal punishment was okay. That was inbounds, right? So how about that element? Uh, Bill. Hey, let's go back to the, the, okay, so let's say a chief petty officer is um, counseling positively or negatively a sailor. Positive counseling is allowed last time I checked. So we're sitting in an office, we're sitting in a work center, we're sitting on a friggin' fan tail or a sponsor or whatever, okay? And and the, I'm, I'm talking to this sailor about his marriage, okay, or her marriage. And, um, and, I'm, at, and I'm asking the questions out of a, out of an integrity-based um, perspective. And I, I want to know how their marriage is because I want to help them if there are problems. That's integrity-based. That's character-based. And if a sailor has a problem with that and they want to file a grievance or if they want to do, you know, take any course of action they'd like, I'm good with that because I know that I was doing that for the right reasons. And not only that, that's not the only sailor that I would ask that question of. Because if I'm going to ask these questions, if I'm going to be that type of person, I better not be that type of leader or person for just one or two sailors. It better be across the board. And if I'm going to be that chief, and if I'm going to be that chief who asks those questions out of the, for the right reasons, then you know what? There are going to be a couple sailors who maybe don't want me in their personal lives. And I get that, okay? But there's going to be a few others who have personal problems, know that I am approachable, and I'm the person that they can come to to either vent or help them. And what am I going to do? I'm going to solve that problem. I mean, maybe I'm not going to solve it, but I'm going to keep that problem from either getting worse or I'm going to be able to push them in the right direction to get them help. And if I am asking those very personal questions from a position of integrity, I am not concerned about a grievance. And if they want to file a grievance, I have faith that it will be unfounded because I am acting out of a stance of character and integrity. So, you know what, if that's what gets me, if I'm a chief petty officer and I'm worried about, um, you know, taking the fall, for lack of a better term, for being a good person and for asking those questions, I'm good with that. Yeah, and I'll, as having been a command master chief, you know, faith in the process as a chief petty officer is important, not just for the sailor, but for the chief. Yes. Uh, and it's been my experience that, hey, for any of those things that come up, um, if you let that process work the way it's supposed to, it gets to what right is. And in many cases, most of that stuff's unsubstantiated anyhow. So it shouldn't be a reason and um, for a chief to back off from not leading in a coercive, assertive, you know, bad way, but from investing in caring, right? Because once again, this is that art of chiefing, I call it, right? It's, yeah. um, hey, you know, the, the personal power, I care about you. Uh, the expert power is, and I would offer Bill, like I see expert powers, not just rating, 
but it is institutional expertise, what you know about the Navy and the policies and the resources available, right. but it's also life, right? And I think sometimes we devalue the life experience, right, for a chief petty officer. The, oh, I've been there, done that. I've been on a deployment. I've been through a divorce. I've seen divorce. You know, um, that's where you get a very robust, mature conversation and expert power base when you can tap into all those things. So the sailors do see you at quarters and they see someone that they know has gives a crap, frankly, and that they know what they're talking about. So they are, a pe- I trust them and then I will come seek you for help. Uh, instead of just dealing with these personal issues that may lead to, as you allude here, a suicide or some, you know, you know, other thing that takes them off the bench. And then the division suffers, the unit suffers, and it's not good for anyone. You know, um, it's uh, <laughs> when they see a master chief, okay, or they see a senior chief, or they see a chief who has been in the mess for a while, it is a reasonable expectation that they can assume you have been through it, that you have been through pretty much any issue they're dealing with, unless it's something that has come up in the last three or four years technologically that we are <laughs> immune to. Um, you know, but they can look at a chief petty officer or a senior chief or mass chief, any of us, any of us chiefs, they can look at us and know, you know what? He may have worn red stripes. Oh, is it too soon for that? Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. We'll look for your article on that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they can they can assume we that do we breaking have, news here at the podcast. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Sorry. Um, no. They can assume that we have experiences to draw from. So I think every one of them can look at us and assume that, right? So the next step is I know that chief has experience. I know, frankly, I know that chief's been divorced. I know that chief has children. I know that chief has dealt with relationship issues while on deployment. So the next step is is a sailor wondering to themselves, can I approach that chief and ask them about it? Yep. Maybe not their own personal experiences, but can I ask that chief for advice about relationships? Because I know that chief has faced similar challenges. And this is, that's the key. Yeah. Yeah, We get to, uh, so Bill, yeah, you know, we've, we've done the kind of chief's mess engagement thing. This is why it's so important when we say this, right? Every, uh, come August, September, and, you know, we get all liquored up on the the chief brand and we're, you know, reinvigorated on being a chief and we're all like, hey, you know, what? The actions of that one chief petty officer, right, good or bad, because those sailors are watching what you do well, but they're also watching what you do bad, right? And they're building on their leadership toolkit for both. Those bad chiefs out there, we're seeing this. This is the case study of how that reputation of one, two, three, four, whatever, one commands chief's mess permeates throughout the entire Navy chief's mess, right? Right. Um, And and we're having that conversation now. So if there's not a more case study on this – um, I think this is great, your article and others, to take into the mess as, as deep discussion and not just during initiation season. Yeah, let's talk about that discussion, if we can, just for a second. Um, first of all, the, the response to, um, to the Facebook thing and the response to the blog uh, has been not surprisingly great, but it has been pretty intense. And, it, and the volume of it has been um, significant. And when I say that, I mean the responses from sailors and their reactions to that. Um, you cannot take, you know, probably 4,000 responses to both products as a sample size of our entire Navy. You can't, I mean, you can, it's a minor sample size, but the fact is, is that sailors' response to that was unsettling. It, it was unsettling. And hopefully, chief petty officers can see that and they can say one of two things. I need to be better or I need to make my peers better. Or the third thing, we've got it good. So let's keep it going. 
So I hope that those two things, um, the Facebook stuff and the, and the blog, I hope it generates conversation amongst our chiefs. I hope the chief petty officers uh, are in their work centers or at their mess trainings or at quarters or in mess meetings talking about how we can be better. You know, how can I be better to, to better support our families and our sailors? And um, even if it's just a little shred, you know, even if it doesn't apply to every chief, every single way that I described in that article, there's probably aspects of it. And I'll tell you something. I, I, I was a better chief. The minute after I wrote that article, I was a better chief. Um, and I'll, I can tell you why in a second. But I'm hoping that the conversations lead to an improvement in terms of the way we lead. When I say I'm a better chief, since the minute I submitted that article, I have done two CDBs, a check-in, and a check-out. And those four interactions with sailors were the best interactions I've had in years. Because I know, I put my name out there. And I called the chiefs out saying that this is what we need to do. And I told myself, if I'm going to do that, I had damn well better do it myself. And I'm telling you right now, those were the four best interactions to include an E5 call yesterday. That was the most honest, open conversation I've had with sailors in a long time. And so it's a, it was a forcing function for me. And I hope that chief petty officers can read that and see it and take part of it on board to make us all a better mess. Absolutely. And I, I'm reminded of uh, the analogy I would, would use for the chief's initiation is uh, midshipmen graduating from the Naval Academy and becoming ensigns. There's this phenomenon, and it's real. I suffered from it a little bit, which is you think at that point that you've arrived and the pack can come off, right? It, it's like, no, no, no. You haven't done anything yet, right? I mean, not Yes, chiefs, newly selected chiefs have done plenty to that point uh, as hardworking sailors, but that's when the work begins. As soon as you put on khaki, nothing's over. You Now you got to shift into the next gear in terms of work ethic and so yeah. forth. So, um, you know, we, we have this tension between professional knowledge focus and uh, the ability to, to develop as a human being. And as a leader, you have to attend to both, both. right? And this was ET2 Fisher's knock on his chief's mess yep. was they didn't have any, they didn't have the necessary technical expertise, yep. and they demonstrated through their actions they didn't care about any of the sailors. So that's a lose-lose. Yep. But you've got to do both, like Bill's saying. Yep. Look, you've got to know your stuff, but you also need to know the sailors enough that they're both technically competent, but also attended to when life gets hard. This is hard work. Yep. And, and so whatever you did to make chief, that's just the beginning when you do make chief. You know, that uh, statement you made, Ward, about a chief petty officer feeling like they, um, they have arrived at, um, you know, once they've put on anchors. When I was writing that article, I, I solicited feedback from a lot of people. And um, one of those people was a senior chief who works with me here. And she was sitting in my office, and she read an early draft. And um, she took I, – there are notes all over that draft, and all of those notes point to um, the problem that we encounter when chiefs believe that we have arrived and we have made it upon the 16th of, 16th of September, the year that they make chief. We have got to reverse that. We have got to convince our chief's mess and our new chiefs that you have been selected – based on your potential to be a very good chief petty officer. Now comes the time where you prove it. And you prove it to us and you prove it to your sailors by being eventually a good chief. You know, the work gets 
tremendously harder. It, I mean, if you think it's hard making chief, it isn't. Not compared to the work that we expect of you when you become a chief petty officer. Not when we expect you to carry the burden of leading sailors. The privilege of leading sailors is hard work, but it can be a burden. It is hard work. And they have got to understand that on the day they put those anchors on, your job just got exponentially harder. And you can either thrive in that environment or you can learn to thrive by the training and the teaching um, and the peer pressure of your fellow chiefs. The article is Message to the Mess, Earn Back the Sailor's Trust. The author is Command Master Chief Bill Houlihan. Bill, thanks for coming by the Proceedings Podcast today, and thanks for using the Independent Forum in its intended way. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Paul, see you later this week. All right, we'll see you down there. And uh, hey, we'll one more plug on something. So uh, April 1st, right, is the 126th birthday of the Navy, of the rate of the Navy Chief Petty Officer. So in recognition of that, uh, the U.S. Naval Institute is uh, offering $10 off membership, right? So if you put in the code, if you sign in for a membership, CPO B Day 10, so CPO B Day 10. Effective immediately or on, uh, on, on April, April 1st? 1st okay. For the month of April. Okay. And then for the Chief Petty Officer's Guide, CPO 2019, CPO 2019 will get you, uh, you know, a good price for the Chief Petty Officer's Guide, recognizing uh, the birthday of the Chief Petty Officer. All right. Fantastic opportunity right there. Okay, thanks for uh, listening to this episode of the show. We'll see you next week. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.